Another interesting week in politics with ICBC's financial woes, revelations from the NDP on Trans Mountain, and a goodbye from Patronus. To talk about those issues and more, Global BC's Keith Baldry and Vancouver Sun's Vaughn Palmer join me. And later, we'll hear from Green MLA Adam Olson. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics for Kamloops Computer Center. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome to the show. Smoke thick in the air up here in Kamloops this morning. Uh, it's been another busy week in politics. Always glad to be joined by Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer to talk about it. Gentlemen, welcome. Hello. Uh, of course, guys, one of the more interesting things to hear this week was David Eby rule out uh, interfering with permits on the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, before we talk about it, take a listen to Eby here and for the listener, pay close attention to how he talks about the pipeline. No, I don't think that actually would be something uh, that would be legally permitted for us to do. We're not allowed to take measures that artificially uh, delay permits. What we are allowed to do is to make sure that the permits reflect having adequate protections for British Columbians and for ensuring that if there is a spill, that uh, there's adequate response and that the construction of the pipeline is done in a way that minimizes the risk of spills. So there are options that are available to us and options that aren't. And we're just clarifying what those are right now. We're getting briefed on those kinds of things. And we'll be moving forward with the best interests of the public in mind. So, Keith, uh, listening to what EB had to say, there's not so much stopping the pipeline in there, but rather managing it. Yeah, I found that your interview, uh, your station's interview with him most interesting. Um, He does talk, the language is important here. He talks as if the construction of the pipeline is a fait accompli. That uh, the the uh, as you say, it's not the government's uh, attempt now to stop it, but just to manage it to mitigate any damages that may result from any spills along the line. So it's uh, now we we put that to John Horgan yesterday when he called into the press gallery from Washington. Uh, he I think John Horgan has is walking a fine uh, line here, where he on the one hand he does not want to be seen as stepping down his opposition to the pipeline. I mean the NDP is opposed to the pipeline. Uh, but on the other hand, I think is that he's not uh, refuting his attorney general, but he has to be careful that he maintains his opposition while his attorney general uses legal language to ensure they do not incur any financial penalty in court should Kinder Morgan decide to sue if they go ahead and actually try to you know, uh, revoke or refuse the, the permitting of the pipeline over streams or riverbeds. So it's a, it's a balancing act, but David Eby, I think, let the cat, cat out of the bag here. Yeah. Uh, Vaughn, what did you think of both what E.B. said and, and what Mr. Horgan said in, in calling into the legislature yesterday? I think this is the kind of reality check you get when you go into government. You can say pretty much anything you want in opposition. You get into government, uh, suddenly, look, E.B. has exactly the same advisors on legal matters as the previous Attorney General. The New Democrats went with the existing Deputy Minister uh, for the Attorney General's Ministry, the same legal advisors. Uh, the We've known for some time, it's a matter of law and constitutional law in this country, that interprovincial pipelines are a federal responsibility, that the ports are federal, that a pipeline connecting two provinces is federal, and that the national government has approved this project and supports it. So provincial options to delay are real. They can hold up permits, but they can't do it arbitrarily. And it was realistic of EB to come out and say that if you just sit on the permits because you don't like the project, you're going to get sued and sued for a lot of money, and you may find yourself into a constitutional battle with the federal government as well. So I thought it was realistic. Uh, I still think the New Democrats will make sure that the permits are in order. They may find ways to, uh, you know, challenge some aspects of them, but um, 
I don't think a provincial government is going to be able to stop this project. I think the project will get stopped. If it's stopped, it'll be by the courts. There's a big federal court case going ahead this fall with all the challenges to it. The courts might stop it, although I note lately that the national courts seem to be taking the view that uh, if you have consulted First Nations, if you have done your, your paperwork on the environment, big national projects can go ahead. The they courts nece- won't necessarily stop them. Yeah. Uh, speaking of John Horgan, here he is talking about uh, what Mr. Eby had to say. Clearly, uh, we need to look at the legal actions that are already underway. There's one in the federal court, one in the provincial court, and any other legal options we have. But we do also need to be mindful that we protect the public interest. We don't want to bring on lawsuits against the government. Uh, we need to be cautious in how we approach this, and that's what I've directed the ministers to do, and I'm grateful that they're doing that. Can you stop the pipeline, John? Well, I'm going to get that briefing next week. So, Keith, it sounds like he's hanging his hat on an existing court action. Is there yeah. anything else in the cupboard other than that? Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're right, Shane, that uh, they seem to be hoping that the court challenges uh, involving First Nations are ultimately prevail. Uh, but as Vaughn says, recent Supreme Court uh, rulings seem to suggest that, uh, again, if you've done the consultation, these projects will go ahead. So uh, I think the permit, EV has signaled that the permitting uh, option seems to be disappearing off the table. And short of a court challenge from First Nations, I don't see there's nothing left for the government to enact here in terms of stopping this pipeline. So uh, it's interesting that now that they're in government, and John Horgan mentioned yesterday that that he realizes when you're in government, the language you use is and must be different than the language you used in opposition. Mm-hmm. In opposition, there's no consequences or ramifications to what you say. When you're in government and you're a minister or a premier, how you uh, characterize things, the language you, you, the language you use, uh, does have uh, bearing, and it can be used in court cases. So uh, he, he was mindful of that yesterday in that same in that phone call to the press gallery, where he, he did acknowledge that uh, in government things are different than when you're in opposition. And I think they're going to realize that on a number of files, not the least of which will be Kinder Morgan. Now, Andrew Weaver, the leader of the Green Party, is already uh, via statement uh, saying he's concerned about a change of language on the Trans Mountain Pipeline front. Uh, if they can't stop it, Vaughn, it does have an impact between their their relationship with the New Democrats. Well, the Greens uh, have pretty high expectations about a lot of things in this partnership. They've stuck with the NDP, but, you know, I think the New Democrats are going to say, look at, at the text of the agreement. We, we said we'd do everything in provincial government power on this, but that doesn't include breaking the law or inviting a, a lawsuit for hundreds of millions of dollars. So I, I think the fine print in that agreement is going to be key. Um, and yes, Weaver has expectations, but I think at the end of the day, uh, I think the the government is the one that's being cautious, and I I don't think New Democrats would expect reckless action. Or sorry, I don't think British Columbians would expect reckless action by their new government. The the other issue, though, with this that's been raised, Shane, is well, what if construction does go ahead and we get the kind of protests we've seen in the past? Well, the New Democrats, you know, okay, so you can protest legally, you can protest, so you get illegal protests. You get injunctions. What do the New Democrats do about that? Do they get the RTMP to enforce the injunction? Mm -hmm. Do they get people to be cleared out of the path of the bulldozers and the construction fences? Yeah. Uh, One final thought on Trans Mountain to just quickly throw on the table. It was interesting to see John Horgan in Ottawa, uh, as one wag put it on Twitter, they came to an agreement on the Trans Mountain pipeline, and that was not to mention it. Keith? Yeah, no, he's had a couple meetings now, face-to-face and over the phone with Justin Trudeau, and you would think at this, 
if this issue was top of mind for John Horgan and the NDP, you'd think it'd be, it would be brought up at that high level. It has not been brought up. John Horgan told me he's agreed to, uh, to, when he's talking to Mr. Trudeau, to talk about things that they agree on and not to talk about things they disagree on. So Kinder Morgan is just not up there on the, uh, on the radar for John Horgan. And uh, when, he, when he talks to Justin Trudeau, the opioid crisis, the softwood lumber uh, deal, uh, things like that are top of mind for Horgan, not Kinder Morgan. And that's another clue, I think, of where this particular project is sliding down the scale of priorities for the NDP. It's, uh, it's not there in terms of a, a top priority. Even the mandate letter he sent to George Heyman, the environment minister, uh, tasks him with the job of ensuring that B.C.'s interests are defended in the face, and I quote, in the face of the expansion of the pipeline. Yeah. Again, another indication that the acknowledgement, a tacit acknowledgement that the pipeline is going to be built. And in terms of the Green Party, Shane, they, they've sacrificed a lot of things here to prop up the NDP in exchange for one vital policy, and that is a promise to have a, a referendum on electoral reform. That is the top priority for the Green Party. It's not fighting climate change. It's not stopping the Site C Dam. It's not stopping Kinder Morgan. It's switching how we uh, elect our governments and parties in this province. That's, uh, that's basically the starting point for the Greens. Everything else takes a back seat. Yeah, and we'll talk to Adam Olson later on. Now, final thoughts on, on Trans Mountain, Vaughn, before we head to another topic? Well, I think the other thing that happened this week that we'll certainly be talking about is the cancellation of the big LNG project, $36 billion walking away from it. Uh, you know, with that kind of uh, with that kind of a headline, uh, how serious are the new Democrats going to be about trying to stop other big resource development projects? Are they get really going to walk away from Site C? Are they really going to do everything in their power to block uh, Kinder Morgan? Or are they going to say, we tried on Site C, but it's too late to reverse it. And we tried on Kinder Morgan, but the federal government imposed it on us. Yeah, and we're going to talk uh, the politics of Patronus next. More with Keith and Vaughn here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Welcome back. We're talking to Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. One of the big bombshells this week was uh, Malaysian energy giant Petronas pulling the plug on its uh, PNW LNG facility or its uh, plans for that facility uh, here on the BC coast. Uh, Keith, uh, obviously a shock, but uh, quick political hay was made of that. What did you think of the political reaction? Well, you know, the Liberals were quick to jump on that, saying it's uh, all because of the NDP, when, in fact, uh, when they were in government, even Rich Coleman expressed uh, concern that this project was not going to go ahead. It's been uh, the fact for some time. There's been a glut of natural gas uh, on the world market. Uh, there's competition from other less regulatory-friendly regimes, uh, countries, uh, to uh, establish these LNG facilities. Uh, so BC was in a competition with a lot of other places, and we just go slow in this province when it comes to approving things. And you combine that with uh, the market conditions, and so it's no surprise that uh, Petronas said no. I don't see how uh, the fact that a new government in BC, which was on the record for being a vocal and adamant opponent of this project, would not factor into the board of directors of this consortium that was going to build this. They've, they've walked away completely. And I 
still think if the Liberals had been is still in power, I think they would have again gone slow, but not completely folded their tents and walked away because it was a friendly government to them. Whereas now you in BC, the fact is uh, the NDP is on record for being adamantly against this project, and if you're the board of directors, that's got to be one of the factors you you put into the mix here, along with market conditions. Yeah, other thoughts, one. Yeah, I would say the same. Look, uh, the, there were a whole lot of reasons why this thing wasn't going ahead right now, but I think probably the last straw for the board of directors was an unfriendly government. The uh, New Democrats thought the biggest problem with the Petronas deal was that uh, they took uh, the provincial government to the cleaners. They, uh, this was a giveaway, a sellout. Uh, the NDP petitioned against it. They they tried to get the regulators to block it. So if you look at all that and you're the company, you're going, why should we... You know, we, they could put it on hold, but why should we even try with an unfriendly government uh, going forward? Uh, you know, the New Democrats say they're going to try a game with other developers, and I hope they get somewhere. There are still projects here that may go ahead someday. Takes what four or five years to build one of these terminals. Prices are expected to recover twenty twenty four, twenty twenty five. So, if you could talk someone uh, like Shell into going ahead on a better site. On different terms, I think that would be worth the effort. And I think Horgan is sincere about trying. It's just that, you know, we're not in an optimum window of opportunity here. And Shane, as Keith said, this this country has a terrible reputation with international investors on resource projects. It takes forever to get stuff approved here. Yeah. Uh, here, Christy Clark uh, spoke to our station yesterday and uh, voiced, I think, for the first time her reaction to Petronas pulling the plug. Here she is market forces and they need to be polite because they still own assets in BC. But the only thing that has changed is not the market. The market hasn't changed. The only thing that changed was the government. And this project, I know, would still be going ahead today if the government hadn't changed or or if the current government had shown even a flicker of interest in developing natural gas in our province. Where there's a government that wrote a letter to the federal government saying that this project should be cancelled, they are hostile to the resource industry. I don't think there's any secret to that. I mean, obviously a little politics in there, Keith, but uh, one of the things that killed Adrian Dix in 2013, uh, after building a lot of bridges with the business community, of course, is a turnaround in Trans Mountain, which sent a chill through the natural resource sector. Is that still the NDP's Achilles heel here and, and stuff like this? Well, I think it's the Achilles heel outside of Metro Vancouver, and that's uh, reflected in, you just look at the electoral map right now. I mean, they've got four ridings outside of Metro and Vancouver Island. And uh, if election were held today, I wonder whether even those four writings would fall into the NDP's hands. There's a real, real, we talked about this before, a real urban divide in this province. The NDP has gone all in on courting the suburban vote in Metro Vancouver and, and the urban vote and really sort of turned their back on, on uh, places outside of that. So, I mean, places outside of that are dependent on the natural resource sector. And the NDP's challenge is to find a way to reconnect with that region and to do that, they have to show that they've got some interest in developing some of these projects, whether it's LNG, mining, uh, or otherwise. And uh, that's a challenge for John Horgan. Uh, that's his background. You know, I've known John Horgan for, for a long time. And he comes from, when he went into government, he worked in the energy side under Dan Miller. Uh, they opened up the natural gas fields in the northeast part of B.C. They were responsible for the real growth in that sector. But the NDP has basically become a different party than it was in the 1990s. It's now very much, it's the greenest government in Canadian history. And the implications for that are pretty significant for the natural resource sector. And it remains to be seen whether the NDP can change its policies to reflect any support for it. 
Now, the uh, the then Clark government puts, as we know, five conditions on heavy oil pipelines, Vaughn. The current NDP government coming back with four of their own for LNG projects. What did you make of that? Well, they've they that's the reason they voted against the, the Petronas deal in the legislature in the summer of 2015. They all voted against it. Uh, they want more jobs for British Columbia. They want tougher regulation. They want to they want more revenues for the province, and they're also going to raise the carbon tax. So you put all that into the mix, and you say, how likely is it that another cons- international consortium is going to come forward and spend billions of dollars in this province? Because you know, the, the really important things on the LNG file that, and I think the liberals uh, underemphasize this as well, the really important things is that, first of all, it's foreign dollars that are going to be invested in B.C., I mean, Site C is a nice project, and I've defended it, but it's public money in British Columbia. British Columbians are borrowing the money, and they're paying to build it. But the thing about LNG was that these, were, these are foreign companies and foreign dollars that are talking about spending billions in our province to develop a resource. The other thing that I would fault the previous government for, Shane, is not making it clear enough, I think, in their pitch. They, they oversold the trillion dollars and the debt-free BC. They didn't make enough of how important it was that we do it now because currently we are captive of the U.S. market with our natural gas. We ship raw natural gas to the states. Prices are down there. They can take advantage of it. In fact, Shane, they've now built LNG export terminals. They can export our gas to the world. So by having somebody, a foreign company, spend all this money in British Columbia to develop a terminal, we were going to wean ourselves off dependent on the U.S. market. And, and that is the real loss to the Canadian economy, to the British Columbia economy, is here we are stuck, still dependent, captives mm. of the American market. Yeah, I agree with that. I also think that the 2013 BC Liberal election campaign promises, as you alluded to there, Vaughn, was a little like uh, taking the LNG thing and going into a poker game and saying we're going to win the largest jackpot we've ever won. It's going to take care of us all. It's going to be amazing. Uh, but we're going to play with all of our cards face up on the table. Keith? Yeah, no, it's, uh, I mean, the 2013 campaign is fascinating. I mean, that it was an unexpected outcome, but the Liberals obviously fashioned a narrative there. And I know from, I've seen some focus group research that suggested the reason so many people stuck with the Liberals in 2013 is that it was a message of optimism, a message of hope that, you know, it may be unrealistic, but it was hopeful that we can actually pull something like this off, achieve this, uh, this grandeur. That message fell flat in this particular past campaign where people weren't really uh, thinking of that anymore, wanted to see more action in terms of them affecting t- uh, policies affect them today, their wallets today. Affordability was the big issue in 2009, not the, the hopes and optimism that came with those lofty promises in 2013. Yeah. Okay, guys, let's take a quick break uh, to the bottom of the hour here, get caught up with the news with Bob Price. On the other side, we get a whole bunch of topics, uh, including uh, the lid being taken off some serious financial problems at ICBC. We'll talk about that and more with Keith and Vaughn when Inside Politics continues after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. 
Welcome back. We're talking to Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. Guys, one of the uh, things that we've been talking about in this show for the last two weeks uh, is, as Keith, you called it a couple weeks ago, the time bomb at the ICBC. And uh, this week, Ernst & Young report uh, was made public, and it certainly showed a big financial mess. Uh, Vaughn, uh, I'm sure you put a lot of eyes on this thing and read this thing front and back. Uh, what was your thought on, on what this report said and, and what kind of problems it poses? Well, first of all, it's a very good report. It is independent. It doesn't pull any punches about the financial mess that the Liberals created there. And it has, to me, some very good ideas about how this thing can be addressed. And that that ranges from, you know, a, a serious crackdown on speeding on the roads, uh, activating... As I, I love the detail in the report that the red light cameras that they have at intersections mm-hmm. are actually switched off most of the time. <laughs> they can't catch people running red lights because they're not operational. So, yep. And that ranges to, um, you know, the biggest cost item at ICBC is not paying off injury claims for minor injuries. It isn't paying off injury claims for major industries. It's paying lawyers. Uh, it's legal and court costs. So mm. there's a whole lot of good ideas in there. And the New Democrats, Shane, could not ask for a better situation in which to be taking over because they can cherry pick this report they can rightly blame the liberals for having let this thing fester and they can say we're going to do this and this and this and this and that we're doing it because of the mess the liberals left so i think there's an opening here for significant reforms in auto insurance in the province and i think the government's got a clear way ahead to do it Keith, uh, they did rule, ADB ruled, uh, obviously, photo radar out, ruled out no-fault insurance, but the report uh, did raise basically an overhaul of the insurance agency away from a litigation model, as Vaughn referred to. I mean, they are awash in legal action and lawyers. Yeah, we stand out uh, compared to the rest of the country. In fact, compared to the rest of North America in how much our auto insurance system uh, uses litigation and lawyers. And uh, the cost of settlements, uh, and ICBC is guilty of this as well. I mean, they like to go to court uh, rather than just, just settle. So the, the cost of a soft tissue injury is capped in Alberta at about $5,000. It's actually in legislation. In BC, it can routinely run to twenty twenty five thousand dollars $25,000. You've got uh, lawyers' fees uh, that make a heck of a lot more, more money in BC than you do elsewhere in the country. So EB... Uh, basically, as you mentioned, he took two things off the table, uh, no fault and photo radar, but everything else is on the table. That includes more red light cameras at intersections. I think that's a, that's a no-brainer, uh, and to be operated on a 24-7 basis instead of, as Juan says, six hours a day, which is ridiculous. And the other one is to somehow modify the, the whole litigation uh, front and to lessen the amount of money spent on lawyers, lessen the amount of money spent on claims. Now, that's going to run into an interesting fight with the trial lawyers uh, the, uh, who battled no-fault insurance in the 90s along with the disability uh, advocacy groups. If they get together and try to push back on this, it'll be interesting. But I think this report gives enough enough ammo for the NDP to fire away here on a, on a number of reforms that maybe they wouldn't have made uh, without without this uh, report being so substantive. Yeah, for the voter, though, and for people driving around the province, and the key thing here is, uh, can the NDP fend off those those nasty rate hikes, and the report had them at 30%, uh, or can they do an overhaul and effectively change insurance rates where people are like, oh, okay, I can, I can live with this. Can they do that and do that in a fast enough time frame, Vaughn? Well, I think one other option that they must be considering is to uh, essentially uh, a $1 billion injection 
of provincial cash into mm-hmm. ICBC. That's how much the Liberals clawed out of the company in dividends to make their books look better. So a brand new government could come in and they could say, we're going to add a billion dollars to the provincial debt because it's the Liberals' fault. We're going to give ICBC a billion dollar head start on fixing this problem. And then we're going to do all of these other tough measures to reduce the accident rate on the road, to to reduce the cost of soft tissue injuries, to discourage fraud, and to reduce litigation. I think that kind of a package is available to the NDP. And again, I think they're in a very strong position to do that, Shane, because we can see from this report... And the Liberals commissioned this report to put this problem off till after the election. Mm-hmm. But they thought they were going to be government and be able to come in here and cherry-pick the report. Instead, it's the New Democrats who can do that. Yeah, although it does raise, and David Eby did mention uh, that uh, the taxpayer money might have to be used here to sort of make ICBC whole, which adds to the problem we've talked about uh, for weeks now, is that they either have promises that cost a bundle or have promises that are going to drive a big hole through revenue. So when it comes time to balance the books, that now presents another additional problem on the financial side, Keith. Yeah, they, they've got a lot of expensive promises to fulfill, you know, uh, reducing MSP premiums by 50%. That's going to take a, that's a, that's a billion-dollar-plus hit. Uh, you've got uh, the the daycare uh, pr- promise, which is going to be phased in over a number of years, but it's going to start out costing a significant amount of money. Uh, you've got uh, promises to you know hundreds of millions of dollars more for the education system. So you, they're sitting on a two billion dollar plus surplus for this past year uh, and likely this year. But as we get going forward to next spring. Um, you can't really guarantee that the, the dollars are going to be as flush as they were right now. So this, these dollars start to add up. Vaughn's Von's right. A billion dollars would certainly give it, the ICBC a head start here, but I'm not sure uh, there's a billion dollars kicking around after all these other promises are accounted for if they want to continue with the balanced budget, which, again, is not necessarily guaranteed. Yeah. I wanted to squeeze in some other topics as we get tight to the end of the third segment here, but uh, wildfire politics, uh, again, rearing its head, both Jackie Taggart and Christy Clark uh, taking the government to task for uh, what Clark called a log jam of communications. Uh, yesterday, Mike Farnworth fired back, calling it all political nonsense, noting he arranged a conference call at Jackie Taggart's behest yesterday for Liberal MLAs, of which zero showed up. So uh, obviously, this is probably going to fall flat with the public. The question is, is, is the Liberals, you know, are they are they are they pushing in the right direction here, or should they just shut up and, and kind of let things let things be? I think they should shut up <laughs> <laughs> on a number of fronts, quite frankly. I think people are, are fatigued after that election. It's uh, like they want all the politicians to go away and be quiet for a while. Uh, the, on the fire side, uh, I talked to Mike Farnworth yesterday. He phoned me up. He was quite choked at what uh, the comments by, from Clark and Taggart. He, he itemized to me a laundry list of how mm-hmm. many times He's offered and personally contacted uh, liberal MLAs in the interior. And he says they all, and this is true around the legislature, everybody has Mike Farnworth's cell number. Uh, he's the most approachable, accessible guy you can imagine in the House, and it, it doesn't change when he's in government. So uh, I think he had a pretty good defense coming back here. I think the liberals would be well, as you say, just to basically shut up and, and let these people do their work. Vaughn? Yeah, the Liberals are still picking themselves up off the floor after what I would say was a double defeat. First of all, they lost their majority in the election, and then they're 
scheme to get the lieutenant governor to force a second election didn't work either. Uh, last I checked, they haven't appointed a list of opposition critics. They haven't accepted really the full responsibility of the opposition role. And a couple of them have been out there making themselves look ridiculous. Andrew Wilkinson and ICBC would be one mm-hmm. example. Some of them are getting the hang of it. I think uh, Ellis Ross and Jazz Johal did a good job on LNG because they know the file and they targeted the future concern about a government that wants to raise taxes and regulation on the on the industry. But I agree with Keith in general. There's a bunch of other subjects on which the liberals really should just shut up. <laughs> Among the liberals, you lost the election. Get over it. <laughs> All right. Uh, final question to you guys before we uh, finish up this segment, and, and that is uh, uh, we've seen a few NDP ministers uh, trot out and, and sort of uh, come on various programs, uh, Selena Robinson down at NW in, in Vancouver, Michelle Mungall in the press gallery, uh, to some degree David Eby, and with big issues put in front of them kind of essentially play the, well, it's early days, we're trying to get our stuff together, getting my head wrapped around the portfolio, et cetera, et cetera. How much time do they have before, if there even is a honeymoon period, uh, if that wears off? Well, the House sits right after Labor Day, and I think by then people are expecting to see a budget and an action agenda from the NDP. There is a learning curve now. I do wonder, however, why some of them are even doing interviews when they know so little about what they're going to do and what their timetable is. EB, I think, has handled himself well. Uh, Some of the rookies, not so well. Yeah, Michelle Mungle, I think, would be best not to take a vacation in August, but get her, bury her head in the briefing books of a, one of the most complicated, complex portfolios in all of government, which is energy. Yeah. So many issues on so many fronts. She has to get ahead of this stuff. Uh, her background is not in that field. Her appointment to that portfolio was a big surprise. And the, the theory is that John Horgan's actually the energy minister because that was his file when he was in opposition. But I think uh, they've got August, I think, to get their, their, their heads around all this stuff. Come September, when the House sits, they're going to be in the legislature facing questions from a very well-informed opposition, the B.C. Liberals, who were in power for 16 years, know where all the bodies are buried, know all the tricks, and they're going to be grilling these, essentially all of them are rookie ministers. I agree with Juan. Evie's handled himself well, uh, so is Farnworth, but I think a lot of others best do a lot of studying between now and Labor Day. All right. Guys, Adam Olson uh, from the Green Party is up next. Do you guys want to stick around for that or no? Oh, listen in. <laughs> All right, sounds good. Uh, Vaughn, uh, Keith, thank you so much. Always appreciate it every week. Uh, up next, as I mentioned, Adam Olson, uh, the MLA for Saanich uh, North in the Islands, uh, to answer some questions from the Green Party side of things on Inside Politics here on Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Welcome back. Joining us on the phone now is the Green Party's MLA for Saanich North and the Islands, Adam Olson. Mr. Olson, welcome. Good morning, Shane. I'm I'm surprised that Vaughn and Keith didn't want to stay on. Uh... I think they might still be there. Vaughn, Keith, you guys still there or no? Yeah, we're still here. Yeah, there. Uh, see, they're there. Good morning, gentlemen. <laughs> Hi, Adam. How are you? Yeah. Well, uh, Adam, uh, obviously, uh, I haven't heard a whole lot from the Green Party since the NDP took power. I know Andrew's on holidays, but uh, some interesting things on the Trans Mountain front. So I, I think my my chief uh, question coming into this is, uh, I know Andrew's uh, tabled a concern about a change of language on Trans Mountain. I'm sure you heard what David Eby had to say this week, and I know that's a big issue for your party and, and getting it stopped. So uh, what are your thoughts on sort of the current stance and where we are today? 
look, I mean, I think that uh, it's certainly a, uh, an issue for British Columbia. It's definitely an issue for uh, for my riding, um, where most of the tanker traffic will be uh, will be coming through. And uh, you know, I was an intervener in the in the National Energy Board process, as was uh, my colleague Andrew. And um, from what we saw in that process, uh, there was a, left a lot to be desired for. And and I think that uh, we do need to ensure that uh, that. Um, the, the commitments that have been made and uh, to um, use every tool in the toolbox are 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 are, are kept to, and uh, that's the work that we'll be doing over the coming weeks and months with our with our colleagues in the legislature here. But what if there are no tools in the toolbox, and and what if the pipeline just gets built? Is is that going to sit well with you and your party? Um, well, obviously it doesn't sit well, and I think that uh, from. You know, I think uh, the the attorney general is getting advice uh, on the on the various tools that uh, perhaps are there as well. Uh, no, you know that the 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 advice coming back is coming from uh, the public service, and uh, in the end, uh, we the politicians have to make some decisions on that advice that's coming back. So, uh, I think that uh, at this stage, um, yes, there's some concern that the language perhaps has been softened, um, but. Uh, I'm prepared to to spend this the the near term here working with them to uh, uh, to to utilize those tools. When you say some concern, quantify that for me. I mean, what kind of what kind of level of concern, and is there a potential impact uh, on your relationship with the NDP because of it, or no? Um, well, at this stage, I'm at this stage. Uh, no, I think that uh, that this is part of developing the relationship and working together, and and. Uh, uh, I haven't had a chance to uh, meet with the uh, uh, the new attorney general yet, um, and so I'm I'm prepared to at this stage uh, work alongside them. We need to be, uh, I you know, there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of information that I'm sure that he's getting and information that uh, that uh, we'll be getting, and so at this stage I, I think that it's important to point out that uh, we as a as a caucus want. Uh, want strong language. We as a caucus want action, and uh, we'll be working with them to achieve that. Sounds like Keith's gone. Vaughn, you still there? I'm still here. All right. You want to pop in with a question here? Yeah. I mean, Adam, is it? I mean, is it honest enough for the government to say, "Look, uh, we inherited this from the federal government and the uh, previous administration, and we're going to do what we can, but we may not be able to stop it"? Is that perhaps the real situation we're looking at here? Um, I don't know that that I don't know that that is the real situation that we're looking at. I know that this government did inherit uh, uh, this this project as as far as it's gone. Um, there's there's no question about that. Um, but you know there are a number of of challenges from uh, communities around our province that are that are underway. There are uh, there are uh, tools in the toolbox, and what it will come down to is is the will of the people in this place and sitting in the legislature. Uh, perhaps you're nearby here um, to to follow through to, uh, to to follow through on the commitments that were made. So uh, you know over the over the next little while, I think that it's important that you know this government's been now a week and a half, and uh, I'm 16 years of files are uh, <laughs> stacked uh, stacked up paper, very very tall. And so I think that it's important that. Uh, there's a there's a, a li- give them a little bit of time, but you know we're working together and we'll be having these meetings and and getting brought in. So uh, I, I, I'm prepared at this stage uh, to have some patience, but you know as Vaughn knows and and Keith and as you know Shane been a- around these conversations a long time. Uh, 
uh, we've taken a very uh, strong position on this, and and uh, our resolve has not changed. Okay, so uh, Adam, uh, I mean, obviously there's some some game to be played yet on the Trans Mountain Pipeline and and with Site C, but it does look like both those projects have a fairly good chance of going ahead, shall we say, at this point. Uh, so the question to you then is is what if anything in that deal is make it or break it? What's sacrosanct in the pact between yourself and the NDP that has to happen, or or it's time to have a reassessment? Um, well, the the uh, the agreement is founded on a principle of good faith and and no surprises, and so I think that uh, you know we come into this agreement. The Greens, you know, I, I ran Green uh, for a reason because I'm I'm not an NDP or or a Liberal, and 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 so I think that what's important is that we understand that there's going to be differences, um, but that uh, we've been very very uh, uh, we we've laid out the priority. Uh, in our relationship with uh, the new NDP government, uh, we want to see them uh, as a government working uh, as diligently and as hard as they can to achieve the outcomes that they can. And, and at this stage, I'm not, I'm not prepared to, uh, to, to put a box around it, but I would suggest that probably the most sacrosanct piece of this, and, and it is of any relationship, uh, frankly, Shane, is that uh, we're working together in good faith and that there's no surprises. And so... Um, look, this is not the first time that that I've been uh, in a in a governing position. I remember going uh, into uh, my my new role as lo- in local government almost ten years ago, and you know um, there is the reality that has to be balanced. Uh, and you know I think that we can that that uh, that, that we can demonstrate political will uh, to to move these forward. We have to make decisions. That's what we got elected to do. So I would say that I would say that as long as we're working together at this stage in good faith and that there's no surprises and that we're communicating with each other and that we're reaching out and communicating with our colleagues in in, uh, in the Liberal caucus as well and, and creating a, a different kind of governance in this province, so that's a great start. Very, very clear on some of the uh, projects that are highlighted, on the projects that are highlighted in the uh, agreement, and uh, we will be working towards the ends and, and the commitments. And at this stage, I think that it's too early to, to put a box around it, frankly. Vaughn? Yeah, I think uh, you just heard a fairly realistic assessment of the situation ahead. And the other thing is, we are going to get this referendum in the fall of uh, next year, so 2018. And I think one of the things people will be looking at when they vote on changing the electoral system is whether they think this arrangement has worked. So these two parties' ability to work together and deliver results that are good for the province will be the test. And if the public says, look, you've they made every effort to stop Kinder Morgan, but it was too late or whatever it is. I think people will just judge whether or not they thought it was an honest effort. I don't think anybody expects that they can do every single thing in their platforms. Does that sound about right to you, Adam? Uh, I, yes. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, look, we, we've, we've made strong commitments to, to achieve things. And, and like I said, it comes down ultimately, no, no matter the advice that we get, um, and and uh, the advice that we get from the civil servants and from uh, the experts, the advice comes to the politicians that have to make a decision uh, in the end. And so that's the job that we have. They've got the civil servants have their job. Public service has their job to, to advise us and to, uh, to protect the interests of British Columbians. And we have to make decisions in the end um, from, from uh, the, the commitments that we've made in our, in our platforms, but as well... Um, making the, the best decisions that we possibly can. 
and uh, and so the, 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 the we've never been in a situation where uh, parties are in a have an opportunity to demonstrate what working together uh, looks like. We haven't been in that situation in a long time uh, in this province, a very long time in this province. And I'm fully prepared and excited about the opportunity to demonstrate uh, to British Columbians that their legislature can work for them, that uh, the people that they elected uh, have set aside uh, the, the, um, the, the, the real partisan divide that, that has existed in this place uh, to achieve positive outcomes uh, on behalf of British Columbians. All right. Uh, we only got a couple of minutes here left, Adam, but a uh, quick question to you to finish this thing off. Uh, LNG, you guys are definitely opposed. Uh, we saw uh, four conditions from the NDP government on future LNG projects. I'm curious what your take is on sort of the tone and the stance uh, on LNG uh, from the province today. Well, look, there's, there's absolutely uh, no surprises on our, on our side uh, from, from our party, our caucus's perspective that uh, the, the NDP have a different approach to LNG than we, than we have. That's been demonstrated through time. And Andrew, uh, Andrew Weaver's been uh, a strong critic of the government, the former Liberal government's, uh, you know, kind of all-in mentality on, on LNG. Um, Andrew's, Andrew's talked very strongly about the economics of it, primarily around the economics, but there's very, uh, uh, very strong arguments to be made from a climate perspective and, and our commitments uh, as a country and our commitment to the province uh, to addressing uh, climate change. And so, you know, this is an issue that uh, it's, it, it is not featured in the agreement, and it's, a, it's an issue that we will continue to work with the government on. Uh, the, the, the projects that uh, are cancelled, that the project, uh, Petronesk uh, project that was cancelled, um, is, is not particularly surprising to us uh, that, that it was uh, put on the shelf. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's not particularly surprising to us. That, I mean, the, the NDP supported wood fiber, so that's you know right. that's not particularly a surprise to us. Okay, that's the work that we do, and and part of the reason why we signed the the confidence and supply agreement in the relationship is formed the way it is. All right, we got to wrap it up there, uh, Adam. Thank you for your time, Vaughn. Thank you for sticking around. Appreciate it, both you guys. Bye, bye, Shane. Thanks uh, a lot for having me, Shane, and great to talk to you this morning, Bob. <laughs> you as well, Adam. That's Adam Olson, the MLA for the Green Party for Saanich North and the Islands. Now, for the on-air side of things, this is where we ended the show on Radio NL. Uh, but as most people know who are probably listening to this podcast right now, big political news broke shortly after the show ended when Christy Clark announced her sudden and unexpected resignation. So for those listening on the podcast side of things, you're going to get a whole lot of bonus content right now as the show continues. And the first guest coming up right now to talk about the departure of Christy Clark, longtime Kamloops North MLA, former health minister, former minister of environment, Terry Lake. Terry, welcome to the program. Um, uh, before we get going and sort of what you think about her and her, what stamp she's left in the party, any surprises on the announcement today? It caught the rest of us flat-footed. I was a, a little surprised. Um, I know the BC Liberal Caucus was meeting, and so I'm sure uh, there was, um, you know, a deep discussion about these things. But, uh, you know, Christy is someone that gave her heart and soul uh, to British Columbia and to the BC Liberal Party. And uh, I know she always would do what she thought was in the best interests of this province. And so I'm sure that was a big part of her decision. Uh, as far as, you know, her legacy, her stamp on the province, on the party, uh, you probably know better than most uh, what she leaves behind. Any indication what that would be or what do you think will sort of be her enduring uh, legacy? 
Well, she got things done, you know, and when I think uh, about back in 2009, when I first got elected, uh, we were facing a financial crisis. We went into deficit. Uh, under Christy Clark's leadership, we really turned that around and we had, you know, five balanced budgets of the best economy in Canada. People were working all over the province and important social programs like the single parent uh, initiative that put a lot of people uh, into training and into work. So, you know, I think, as uh, I said before, she is someone that cares deeply about British Columbia. And I think that showed in, in her work. Uh, she created strong emotions in others as well, of course. And that's why people were either really much a Christie fan or they weren't. Uh, but I want to uh, thank her uh, for her great contribution to BC. So the future now, uh, what happens next to the party? Uh, do, do you think it has a chance to strike a new, fresh direction? Is it a good move now to kind of, you know, have a clean slate? Well, I think after 16 years, uh, you know, as government and uh, after the last election, it's probably good to have renewal, uh, bring some new voices, new faces uh, to the party. You know, really think about what British Columbians uh, were telling us over the last few years, and particularly through the election. And uh, so a renewal uh, through a leadership race is always a good thing. I think it generates interest and uh, brings fresh ideas. So I, I think that's a, a good thing for the party. Now, you only had uh, two talk shows, and, and now potentially you could run for leadership, which is uh, much shorter than I thought. Well, uh, I don't think uh, I'll be throwing my hat in the ring, uh, but there are a lot of very capable people out there, and... Um, you know, it'll be very interesting to, to see what happens and who steps up, uh, both within the party and perhaps from outside of the party as well. Um, it's a great honor to, uh, to be in politics and to lead a political party. And so I know there'll be a keen interest in, in uh, people to do just that. So there's no temptation in your side here, Terry, none whatsoever? No, I, you know, I've done my time in, in provincial politics and uh, local politics, and um, there are other people that I think have demonstrated uh, tremendous strength of character, leadership skills, uh, and so I think uh, I'll be content to, uh, to uh, play maybe a, a role in, in the leadership in terms of, of seeing who comes forward and, and uh, looking for the best person to lead the BC Liberal Party. Any ideas sort of off the top that you want to share about people you think would be perfectly suited for the job? Or, Well, we've, there's a number of people, you know, within the caucus. Uh, you know, of course, my, my good friend Todd Stone comes to mind immediately, and people like Andrew Wilkinson have been talked about, people like Mike Bernier even. Um, uh, Christy will be very tough to follow, and um, uh, it'll be interesting to see who does step up. But, I, you know, it's not up to me to, uh, to say, but I, I think those are people that have been uh, there's been some level of speculation about but it's a it's a huge commitment and people with families um it is it takes a real toll so i think uh, that's obviously what people have to consider uh, when they uh, think about running for a leader all right any other thoughts on christy clark or the current situation well i think she is one of the strongest most capable people i know and um, i think she did a lot to promote uh, women and leadership in our province and in our country. She had an unprecedented successful track record and um, really turned the province around from a fiscal perspective and from uh, getting people working again. Uh, and so, again, I, I think whether people like Christy Clark or did not like Christy Clark, uh, they can't deny the positive impact 
uh, that she has had on this province. That was Terry Lake, the former two-term B.C. Liberal MLA for Kamloops North, also former health minister and minister of environment. The show continues as we bring on a familiar name for audiences in this part of the world and uh, probably for many in the province as former MLA, former leadership contender George Abbott joins us to talk about Christy Clark here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Welcome back to the program. Joining us next on the phone is former BC Liberals MLA, former leadership contender and former Minister of Education in George Abbott. Obviously uh, a bit of a bombshell. Nobody kind of expected this. Uh, you ran against her in the last Liberal leadership race and uh, have some experience with her. Uh, your thoughts just on the news and, and your sort of experiences with Christy yourself? Sure. Well, I I certainly am among the ranks of those who are uh, very surprised to see this. It's uh, It's not something that I expected at this point, uh, but um, I, mean, I guess given given the dynamics of the situation, it's uh, it's understandable. And obviously, as someone who had the opportunity to serve with her and for her uh, uh, for a number of years, I also want to wish her well in in whatever it is she's uh, taking on for the future. Uh, I did have the opportunity for to serve, I guess, for two or three years uh, under her premiership. I actually uh, enjoyed those years. Uh, the uh, the premier, Premier Clark, uh, was I think uh, very good at allowing her ministers to to do their work without a lot of uh, a lot of interference from the premier's office or from the top. Uh, I thought she was uh, she was very good uh, that way. Uh, so you know, I appreciated the opportunity. I you know had to be uh, education minister and get some things done uh and uh, she she was always uh very supportive and and uh always was uh was prepared to have ministers do their work without uh, without that interference or at least that was my experience with her I remember during the leadership campaign, there were some broadsides sort of traded back and forth between uh, your two campaign teams uh, yourself and Christy. How much of that was just sort of part of the campaign and and how much was legitimate heat well I think uh Probably most of it would have been part of the campaign. Uh, one of the things that uh, my team, at least the pollster end of my team, advised me of uh, very on it, very early on in the campaign was that she had a very substantial lead, and that we had to uh, to take some runs at her if we had any hope of closing the gap. So you know, a lot of it's inspired by that. Uh, leadership campaigns are often not a time when when uh, personal relationships are reflected a lot in the in the discourse, people people generally are trying to do what they what they have to do to to win the win the leadership or win whatever contest it happens to be. So, I'd say the great majority of that was was the politics of the time, and uh, in retrospect, a kind of desperate attempt to uh, to knock off what was uh, an insurmountable lead on her part. Uh, George, already uh, speculation about who might take a shot at the leadership, and you may be surprised or not surprised to hear your names being mentioned already. Uh, your thoughts on, I mean, is that a possibility or is that a flat-out no? What's your thoughts? Well, I'll, I'll try not to, uh, to, to have my response be in the form of, uh, of, of just uh, laughter. That would be, uh, of course, uh, disrespectful. No, I think, I think the, uh, the ship has sailed as far as, 
as me and and leadership of the of the BC Liberal Party um, I enjoyed my time there uh, but uh, I'm 64 now and and I suppose uh, when you have a 71 year old US president anything is possible but uh, it is not something that uh, that fits into into my plans anymore and and I suspect there will be a younger generation of leadership candidates uh, emerging in the BC Liberal Party and and they'll be uh, building themselves around that and last question, George, what do you think her legacy will be uh, to the province, to the party? I think the uh, Christy Clark legacy w- will will be largely focused on her electoral victory uh, in, in 2013. I think, uh, I think a lot of folks uh, had written her off in 2013. Uh, I wasn't running, of course, and was trying to sort of have a more uh, a balanced, uh, objective look at that campaign. But I think, you know, it was fairly remarkable that she was she was able to take the Liberal Party after uh, the setback that was uh, central to the collapse of the harmonized sales tax and so on. There, there was a lot to overcome in that 2013 campaign. And, uh, and I think she will be remembered uh, not only for her period as premier, but I think uh, she will be very much remembered for, for her leadership of the party in 2013. George, we're going to have to leave it right there. Thanks again for taking the time. Always good to hear from you. That's George Abbott, uh, former BC Liberals MLA, former Minister of Education, and former BC Liberals leadership hopeful. Well, we're going to take a quick break here on Inside Politics. When we come back, we'll be talking to Andrew Weaver, leader of the BC Green Party, who, when he heard the news of Christy Clark leaving, uh, gave us a ring. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Well, welcome back to this extended version of Inside Politics, a podcast exclusive, if you were. Uh, we have now on the phone uh, with us is the leader of the BC Green Party, uh, Andrew Weaver. Andrew, I know you're on holidays, so uh, thank you for taking a few minutes to chat with me today. Obviously, the big news of the day is uh, Christy Clark uh, suddenly and unexpectedly uh, announcing her departure from politics uh, will be the last day as Liberal leader, August the 4th, and she's stepping down as MLA uh, for West Kelowna. So first of all, your, your reaction to the news. Well, I was surprised, like I'm sure most uh, of your listeners were and readers were, that uh Premier would choose to to do this in the summer. I had expected her to uh, come into the fall, as she said she would, as leader of the opposition. But I guess she's been speaking to uh, advisors, caucus colleagues, and others, and uh, decided that this is the time she wanted to step aside. Before we get into what happens next and what this means, uh, you had some uh, one-on-one dealings with her on numerous occasions in your political career, culminating in the Mm -hmm. campaign, of course. Uh, uh, What do you remember most of Christy Clark, and and what do you think she leaves behind uh, politically and and, and as far as a standpoint? You know, as as you pointed out, I've had a good working relationship with the Premier and and many in her caucus for many years. Um, You know, the highlight of one of the highlights, if not the highlight of my political career, short as maybe is uh, working with the Premier to advance and have passed policies in post-secondary education, actually driven out of Thompson Rivers there in uh, Kamloops. A student there brought some of this to our attention. So uh, 
to to deal with uh, sexualized violence policies on campuses. So now, you know, this is a legacy that she needs, is that uh, by working collaboratively in a nonpartisan fashion, post-secondary institutions are safer than they were uh, four years ago before she came in. Uh, we also work together on uh, advancing regulation to make it illegal now in British Columbia for employers to require uh, women to wear high heels for health and safety reasons. Uh, there was a number of other policy measures. And, and so I've had a very good working relationship. I hold her in high regard. Uh, you know, obviously, I, I wish she stayed, but then I wish her the very best moving forward. And I understand the decision she made. Andrew, obviously, there was a, a ton of speculation with the one-seat advantage about uh, what this new government, new legislature would look like. Uh, I, I think all of us can kind of agree that uh, what happens next now with the by-election, the leadership convention, all that jazz, there's going to be at least a year, if not more, uh, where there's not going to be the threat of an election. Is that a sigh of relief from your part of things? or? Well, I mean, again, we, we signed a... a, a, a um, confidence supply agreement, which gives the under underpinnings of a, a four-year uh, working relationship uh, to make the government stable here in British Columbia. We thought it would have been fine regardless of uh, uh, whether another seat came. Surely it, it is much easier now for at least next six months until the by-election must occur. And, and uh, but, uh, but again, I don't think things will change as to what uh, policies would have been brought forward. Uh, it just makes it a little less you know, uh, controversial as legislation has passed. Uh, once they do appoint a leader, it's going to be uh, back to the old political ball game. And do you feel like the the heat will be you know cranked up again at that point? Or well, I think you know we're seeing the antics right now already playing out in the media with from the BC Liberals. You know, uh, trying to to pin the ICBC report on the BC NDP, a report that the BC Liberals themselves commissioned, and uh, and, and ICBC is in the state it was because of 16 years of BC Liberal. Uh, leadership on that file or lack thereof. So so your games have been going on all the way through. The BC Liberals have had a hard time hanging on uh, to the realization that they're not in government anymore and um, certainly trying to pin, you know, outrageous things on the BC NDP. So I, 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 I just think it'll be more of the same. I, I just wish that people would stop it, you know, get on with actually uh, putting forward good policy and, you know, Nothing stopping the BC Liberals bringing good, good, good ideas forward because the BC Greens will support those too. You know, once we now have confidence in the legislature, we're willing to support good legislation regardless of uh, who puts it forward. And we said, you know, in the last session, once confidence was tested, this is precisely what we would do. So basically, uh, if I understand that, your message to whomever the new leader is is basically to stop playing political silly bugger. Exactly. Uh, you know, British companies are sick and tired of political. Uh, you know, silly buggers, they, they want the politicians to actually solve the problems of today. You know, we saw, we saw all political stripes unite around the, the uh, caribou wildfire issue. Uh, this is a, a classic example of where, you know, all of a sudden partisan politics vanishes, as it should. But it shouldn't just be in cases of emergencies. It should be in cases of, of, of trying to deal with a health care issue that's pervasive, dealing with a fentanyl crisis, dealing with affordability, which is you know, an enormous problem uh, throughout British Columbia now, dealing with climate change, dealing with, you know, uh, conservation of our wildlife as we all go through this potpourri of, of resource distractions without actually actually thinking about the cumulative impacts. You know, there are solutions out there. Bring them forward. Let's discuss them and let's get away from the political silly buggers and the, and the ad hominem attacks and, and do what we're, we're paid to do, which is govern. Andrew, some big, uh, some big projects hit the news recently. Of course, uh, Patronus, uh, maybe we'll talk about that one first. Uh, the LNG project making its exit. A lot of politics around that. But uh, what do you think of that project uh, saying goodbye to BC? Look, five years ago, 
I stood up and said, there ain't going to be any LNG happening in British Columbia anytime soon. Uh, and five years later, there's nothing surprising me as Petronas says that they're moving, moving out. Look, four years ago, I talked with senior officials in Petronas, and they specifically stated to me that they were trying to target a supply gap in 2018 to 2019. Uh, that's impossible to target today. So their announcement uh, was all about market conditions. Uh, they also would have recognized, of course, that you know we've given away so much already in those agreements that you know uh, uh, without actually paying them literally cash to take our gas, uh, the market would would simply not support it. So there's no surprise here. The liberals are claiming one thing, but again, you know, I could quote time after time as as the minister of natural gas just railed into me as if I knew not what I was talking about, told me that I didn't know what I was talking about. He was looking forward to the me eating crow. He did that two years ago, three years ago, uh, at when these, because he knew what was going on in the industry. Well, in fact, they were not going to come because of a global glut. And on top of that, of course, is Iran have had, has had sanctions removed. So we've got yet another uh, market opening, another supplier in the, in the market. You know, we're not the only ones in the world who understand what horizontal drilling is. Uh, anybody can get access to the shale gas now, and, and that's why we've got a glut. We have no infrastructure on the coast. Uh, U.S. already had infrastructure on the coast uh, because they used to be importers of LNG. In addition, the Isthmus of Panama was just widened. Again, all of this stuff, I said five years ago, uh, Petronas, Shell, and others are kicking the can here in B.C. But again, we had reckless irresponsibility by the B.C. liberals trying to deliver water from stone by squeezing it. And when they didn't get it, they tried to squeeze harder. So there's no surprises in the Petronas announcement. The only surprise, um, or I guess maybe that's not even a surprise, was the attempt by you know, the B.C. liberals uh, and MLAs to try to pin this somehow on a change in government when it was actually irresponsible that they went all in in the first place in this regard. You know, we're supposed to have 100,000 jobs by now, five active LNG plants, $1 trillion increase in GDP, elimination of PST, $100 billion prosperity fund. Yeah, it's just all unicorn, you know, unicorns in all our backyards. This was just a, a, just a, a hyperbolic, hyperbolic hype that uh, was never going to happen, and I wish uh, we got this kind of language out of politics. What do you think of the NDP sort of uh, with the mandate letters and the four conditions on future LNG projects? What do you think of the tone of this new government uh, where it concerns this LNG industry then? Well, the, the, the BC NDP have to take a, a more um, you know, cautious tone in terms of governing. They're, they're, they're clearly uh, ministers are speeding, spinning up to... Uh, uh, to their files, they're, they're, you know, some people are making statements that they probably shouldn't have been making because they haven't actually been in the ministerial office. Well, their mistakes will be happen. Uh, the letters speak for themselves. I would suggest that um, you know we are, are understand the importance of, of providing these these mandate letters, and you'll see in them the importance of our agreement with the BCNDP as part of those mandate letters. Uh, we'll, we'll continue to work to ensure that uh, BCNDP deliver on what they said they would. All right. Uh, last couple of questions here to do with the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, I know that you were concerned about sort of a change of tone or a change of language there. And uh, David yeah. Eby, I don't know if you heard what he had to say this week, but he basically ruled out interfering with permits because it would risk a costly lawsuit. So the, yeah. it looks like the tools in the toolbox are getting scanter and scanter. Your opinion of that? Well, I think Mr. Eby should be um, more proactively stating that as Attorney General, he's not going to comment on such cases that uh, he is uh, determined to provide uh, work with uh, legal teams on. This is before the courts. 
There's multiple legal challenges going on, and Mr. Mr. Eby just shouldn't be saying things like that, because if he does, he should also add on things that they can do. So, so this was, uh, I think it was a mistake of a, of a rookie minister uh, speaking out of turn without actually recognizing that uh, there are many things that can be done, and, and he just said what he's not going to do, um, but there's many things that can be done. Like the, the, the city of Vancouver and Squamish First Nation have a, before the courts a, a case uh, where the province is a defendant looking for a judicial review of the environmental assessment process. As somebody who participated in that as an intervener, I can say that the process was completely rigged and that was completely impossible to defend. The province has a very strong case in that regard, uh, and the province might actually uh, go to the courts and seek, seek uh, to the extent to which the courts um, um, support the fact that this case uh, uh, does have some some uh, Vancouver case has some merits. So 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 there's lots of things that can be done. Uh, frankly, I don't think the market's ever going to go forward. Not the least of which is market conditions don't support it with uh, oil at a at, you know under fifty bucks a barrel and China going all in into renewables. It's just uh, again um, the desperate attempts to hang on to a 20th century economy while the rest of the world is moving forward. All right. Is it a deal breaker for you, Andrew, if the government doesn't stop the project, if it ends up going ahead? I know you think it won't, but if it does get built, is, is that a significant cause to kind of reassess the relationship? We'll no? cross that bridge when it happens. Uh, there's a lot of things at play here, and I, I still, you know, nothing's happened yet, so let's just give them a chance to show what they can do. And so I'm not going to prejudge or, or throw out bail threats. I'm going to say that, you know, Mr. Eby probably spoke out of turn there. Uh, I think that uh, the BCIDP still have a lot of time to follow through with their commitments, and I'm looking forward to them doing just that. All right. Andrew, uh, you're always gracious with your time. I appreciate that. Thank you, sir. Pleasure, Shane. Thanks. That's Andrew Weaver, leader of the BC Green Party, talking about, uh, of course, the departure of Christy Clark, as well as some other topics mixed in there. Uh, we're going to, again, take a very quick break here on Inside Politics. This is an extended podcast special with a whole bunch of other guests. Uh, we're going to wrap it up with our next segment, where I'm going to bring back Vaughn Palmer to talk about Christy Clark saying goodbye. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Welcome back to the program. Time to bring back Vaughn Palmer, longtime Legislative Bureau Chief for the Vancouver Sun at the Legislature in Victoria. Man, Vaughn, it, what was last week we finished the show and they fired Jessica McDonald from BC Hydro within minutes. This week we finished the show and Christy Clark resigns. Maybe we should just carry the show forward for a little while. But anyway, uh, obviously a big bombshell. Uh, she said up until even yesterday on this station, she was going to stick around and do whatever job was required. Uh, today, throwing in the towel, August 4th, last day as leader. And I understand and she's also resigning her West Kelowna seat. So uh, before we talk about the future, uh, what kind of legacy, uh, what kind of memory, what kind of stamp does she put on the party in the province? Well, six and a half years as premier, because we go through premiers at such a great rate in this province, I think she's actually the sixth longest serving premier of BC in history. She's already served longer than any new Democrat has been premier, and she's served longer than any recent premier other than Gordon Campbell or uh, Bill Bennett. So it, it's a, uh, you know, you don't have to stay in office very long in this province to be, to have a legacy. And I think, you know, she will be remembered, obviously, for that big win in uh, 2013. I think she'll be remembered for leaving the provincial finances in relatively good shape. Uh, in fact, you sort of ask yourself how anybody could have lost an election with that uh, that economic legacy, but what you say about that is, is uh, give her full credit. She's taken full blame 
for losing the majority in the spring and walked off the stage. All right. So uh, what does it mean for the future? Obviously a bit of a bombshell. We didn't expect it, but uh, I imagine it gives the, the current government some breathing space. Big sigh of relief, I would think, from uh, the new Democrats. You know, they were going into a fall session with a balance of 44 to 43 in the House. Well, effective next Friday, it'll be 43-42. You have to call a by-election for a vacant seat in the B.C. legislature within six months. So that means that Horgan could go through the entire fall with one vacancy uh, in the opposition side and that much additional breathing room. The Liberals are going to be preoccupied all fall with a leadership convention. They're going to meet within the next month to date. So the pressure is off the New Democrats. They get a shot at governing. And uh, I think the immediate political effect is that the opposition uh, leader of the opposition position uh, will be filled by an interim leader, but it'll be vacant in effect. Yeah, any, I mean, uh, I'm seeing a little speculation on social media now, but I mean, it, my gut would say no election for a year, possibly two, unless John Horgan wants to, and I think it would be a mistake, uh, pounce and call an early election somewhere. Um, I think Horgan will call an early election only if, uh, you know, the, the House gets paralyzed, and that's less likely to happen now. He and the New Democrats get a chance to show they can make this partnership work. Uh, I think the next, we'll certainly have a vote in the fall of 2018 because that's when they're going to have the referendum on proportional representation. But it, it does take some of the pressure off Horgan. Uh, you know, the Liberal Party, when they have a leadership race, it's like the old social credit party. Party tends to divide on ideological lines, liberals versus conservatives. So that could happen as well. But I mean, obviously, the liberals are going to be preoccupied by all this. Um, and in the meantime, the New Democrats get to a chance to show what they can do. Yeah, so um, going forward, obviously the, the attention at some point, I like. I don't think anyone's going to come out today, but um, we're going to start looking for who's going to throw their hat in the leadership race. Any obvious candidates in your mind? Well, you're hearing a lot of names already, and I think, you know, I'd be surprised if Todd Stone and Andrew Wilkinson don't go for it. Uh, I think Coleman and DeYoung are, are an old story and would be unwise to run again. George Abbott's an interesting question. Diane Watts, a former mayor of Surrey, now a federal conservative MP. I think she went down to Ottawa expecting to be in cabinet. She must be bored down there, so maybe she'll come back to British Columbia and seek the leadership. Uh, the one thing about Clark vacating her seat and resigning it is that seat will be there as a vacancy so the party can try to recruit somebody from outside the legislature and and then that person might have the option to run in the by-election. So in that sense, Clark has provided the party with an opportunity to broaden the potential field of candidates, not just people in the legislature right now, but they could try to recruit from outside the legislature as well. Although the timeline to do that would be slim because it's John Horgan and the government that would have the trigger in a by-election. Yeah, but I think, you know, that John Horgan and the government are more likely to leave the seat vacant as long as they can because it takes the pressure off them in the House then, then jump the by-election date and bring it forward. I think they're more likely to leave it. Uh, the Liberals tended to leave vacant seats as long as they could. They waited. They did the maximum six months a couple of times. So I think Horgan has a, a, an opening to do the same and say, look, this is what the Liberals did, so I'm going to do the same thing. On the leadership thing, to bounce back to that for just a second, I mean, you mentioned Todd Stone, obviously, from hearing Kamloops. Uh, if memory serves, there's not a whole lot of leaders of the NDP, or even the Liberals for that matter, uh, who come from the rural part of the province. Is that, is, is, is that affect things? George Abbott had a tough time in the last Liberal leadership race 
because he was strong, coming from Shuswap himself, he was strong with a, and had a lot of support in the north and the interior and the hinterlands of the province, but he had trouble getting members in the big urban centers in the lower mainland particularly. Look, you know, uh, both parties are very good at signing up members of the South Asian community to vote for their leaders. It's one member, one vote. So they have a disadvantage in that unless they have allies who can sign up uh, those fairly large numbers in the lower mainland. And that affects both NDP leadership races and liberal leadership races. They're both up against the same disadvantage if you don't come from Metro Vancouver. And I guess last question, uh, to go back to Christy Clark, who said, uh, again, up until yesterday, uh, that she was going to stay on and do whatever job was required. She was going to be opposition leader. Uh, what do you think was the pressure? What do you think it came from to kind of suddenly turn around today and say, no, I'm, I'm not sticking around? I think it was twofold. I think partly uh, uh, realizing that it was going to be very, very difficult to recover from having lost the majority in May and having failed in her plan to force a section election in June. She was really doubly defeated there. So I think she was going to have trouble ever coming back from that. I think also she was hearing a certain lack of enthusiasm from BC Liberals about her continuing as leader. I think the really the only big question in the party was when would she go? Uh, I could have seen her sticking through the fall in case the arrangement in the legislature fall apart, but I guess she just decided, uh, look, give her full credit for one thing. She took full credit for the big win in 2013, and she deserved it. She's now taking full credit for the poor showing in 2017, and the full credit for that failure belongs to her. All right, we'll leave it at that. Vaughn, thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Bye-bye, Shane. That's Vaughn Palmer doing double duty here on Inside Politics and the special extended podcast version of the show as we take a uh, look in the latter half at uh, Christy Clark's surprise announcement of her political exit, uh, stepping down as leader and as MLA for West Kelowna, and uh, what happens next with the BC Liberal Party, which will provide plenty of fodder for this show uh, next week and in the weeks ahead. I hope you enjoyed listening. Thank you for tuning in and for uh, subscribing to Inside Politics, and we'll see you right here next week. Local, first, CHNL, AM 610 in Kamloops, RadioNL.com, the Valley's first choice for local news.